Hello, Face Value listeners. Welcome to episode number six of Face Value. I think we're getting close to syndication, having five in the can. Pretty impressive. My name is Warren Boisot, S-R-A-A-I-R-R-S, and your host for this month. Today, I'm joined by Michelle Rogers, S-R-A, and Ken Dix, M-A-I, for a conversation on ways in which appraisers and lenders can successfully work together. We'll be diving into their personal experiences in this area and sharing advice and tips from the field. Tons to cover today, so let's get right into it. Today, we have amazing guests lined up. I'm happy to introduce Michelle Rogers and Ken Dix. Michelle, why don't you start us off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Warren. My name is Michelle Rogers. I'm an SRA. I've been part of the Appraisal Institute for probably close to 30 years, and I've had my designation for about 12 years. I've been appraising uh, residential real estate since 92, so I guess that's 30 years. <laughs> I was like a bank appraiser starting out, so I got bank trained, if that makes sense to everybody who's done that. I've worked for an AMC I did a Fannie Mae fraud investigation, and now I'm the chief valuation officer for New American Funding, and I've been here for about nine years, So, and I've done all this in Southern California, primarily. Okay, that was my next question. I didn't catch. You're in Irvine, right? I'm in Irvine, yeah. We, we do our research here at Face Value, just so you know. <laughs> and then my other question, Michelle, was you said 30 years, 12 designated what, what happened the first 18? Why didn't you jump right in with AI right from the get-go? Gosh, I don't, I, well, I was a member. I was showing up to the meetings. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, I, I had one person that really kind of lodged me through it. You yeah. know, it was one of those moments where, so his name is um, Randall Bell. I don't know if you're familiar with him. And uh, he said to me, why don't you have your designation? It was just that for that person that just finally said that to me. And like, he says, you can do so much more. And so the minute I got it, things went much better. It's just smoother and things were happening in the industry. So every time something ebb and flows, I have somewhere to go and something to do because I have a, a designation, to be honest with you. I mean, I work hard, but having that designation's really paid off. Yeah, the so much more that you mentioned is what we're probably really going to dive into today. But you did touch on what I wanted to definitely focus on is with that designation, what is the more that appraisers can find in their careers? Ken, you are up. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Warren. So happy to be here. I really do appreciate the invitation. I started my appraisal career right out of college back in 1984, and I worked with an SRA, Diane Gilbert, in Tampa, Florida. I've been fortunate uh, that I've been able to play in both the residential and the commercial space now for almost 40 years. I've had various roles. I've been a fee appraiser on a commercial and residential side. I've been a bank appraiser, a bank reviewer. I did a stint as a deputy tax assessor for the second largest city in New England, 2000s after a bank merger. Uh, great, great wealth of experience that came out of that one. Then I moved back into the banking sector and became a director of collateral risk at a large uh, international bank here based in New England. And currently, I'm the Director of Appraisal Compliance and Initiatives for the appraisal technology company, Regora. I earned my MAI designation back in 2002, and I've served as local chapter president here at the AI in New England uh, back about five years ago. And I've been involved with the AI's client advisory board at the national level. Nice. So, Massachusetts, you mentioned a stint as the assessor for the second largest city, Sitting in Denver, Colorado, I'm just going to take a guess. Okay, Boston's one, right? Boston is one. Two. What is two? 
Second largest uh, city. If we have any Holy Cross graduates out there, they would know it's Worcester, Massachusetts. Worcester. Okay. Yep. Good. I try it's to learn a, something every day. It's the city no one can pronounce. Yes. Worcester. Worcester. Yeah, no. <laughs> with, with your with your accent, Ken, I was definitely, I had you pegged for Houston, Texas, but Massachusetts, <laughs> that really threw me there. Nice. Great. Well, great to meet you both. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate your time. So let's dive right in and, and kind of focus on some of your personal experiences wor working with lenders. Feel free to jump in, either of you, at any time, but describe maybe some memorable experiences that you've had successfully working with lenders in the past. Well, personally, working for a lender, I worked for a bank and I worked with lenders and I found that it's it's a different bug. But working with a, a lender, you just you got to earn their trust. And I always go around to that. How can I earn their trust? And how can I make that I'm the one person that they remember? And when things are getting tight and slow, they'll remember you above the rest because you deliver quality turn times and things like that. With lenders, I've always, I've always had good experiences when I was out in the field. Great insight. My first role was as a review appraiser at a uh, large local savings bank in, in Worcester, Massachusetts. And the first interaction I had with a high and executive level, every Christmas time, the chief lending officer for commercial, his name was Thornton Banks, what a great banker name. So Thorny would come in and he would pop his head in and say, appraisal department, he gave us a big thumbs up. He said, thanks to you, you're keeping us out of trouble. So it really drove home the message that that bankers and lenders really rely on the services of appraisers when making their their loan decisions. There was a lot of capital that was uh, political capital with the chief appraiser. The prior one to that, he basically told the bank to shut off their condo lending, their new development condo lending in the late 1980s, which probably saved that bank because a lot of banks went under in the that first financial crisis back in 1990. Michelle, I'm going to touch on something that you said because I, it's my job as the host to be devil's advocate here. And knowing we have a lot of uh, listeners out there, many of which are residential, they might be saying right now, well, you talk about relationships and things like that, but I'm just on a rotating list, right? When I'm with a lender, I'm on their fee panel. It just comes up in a, in a random rotation, right? So what does it matter, a relationship? Well, I think that it, it does come up in a random rotation, but when times are tight, they do cut back. They have scorecards. The good lenders will let you know where, where you sit among their people. They use that. And I find that I was always making sure I was in touch with everybody there at the, at the lender or the bank, whatever I was working for at the time, to make sure that they remember me. So if they get that complex assignment or somebody they can go to, you know, they can still assign it to me, even though it's rotation. It could be like a, you know, as long as it's within compliance, you get the good work. And with the SRA designation, that helped out a lot, too, a lot of times, which was very helpful. Gotcha. I, I would agree with you, Michelle. And I, I think a lot of appraisers out there think that turn times and, you know, some of the some of the things like accepting all the orders and not turning down what they would consider the complex hard ones. I've found feedback from lenders that I work with, because I should have mentioned I do mostly lender work myself. So I know what you're talking about is just following up with, hey, I've tried to call the borrower. I've tried to schedule. Okay, now I've got it scheduled. I'm, you know, mm -hmm. just little stuff like that. I'm going to guess from your perspective in the banker's seat is so helpful following up and keeping the status updated for you, correct? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And, and especially since I am now on the lender side, I see the stress points, let's call it, whether you call them sales teams or stress points, you know, because it's not just the sales teams, it's the underwriters, it's, it's everybody and all the moving parts of finishing a loan on that side. It's crazy. And so it's the juggle game. And it's if you turn in your report and you turn in good time or you reach out to them and say, hey, this is really complex. I love the guys that reach out to me and say, hey, can I bounce this off of you before I get started to see what we need to make sure we cover? Because maybe it's super complex or something different or who's your investor or something to that effect. Because unfortunately, it's not a box. And all your investors and all your banks are a little bit different. And so when the assignment gets more complex, then communication's the best. On that note, it's so important for for the appraiser and lender to have a relationship. I know in this day and age, it is sometimes difficult to be able to talk to somebody at an appraisal desk or someone in an appraisal department. But I know when I moved back into the residential space back in uh 2011, 2013, in that period, I would call appraisers and they would say, and now who are you and, and what bank? I've been on that list for 30 years and I haven't heard from anyone in 10 years. You know, so right. there was this this period of time where you just, all communication was shut off and everything was done through automated systems. And the automated systems are doing a great job, you know, in improving some efficiencies in the process, but it doesn't replace a a strong relationship that's with open communication that you, the appraiser can have with the lender. And to Michelle's point, there are six congruent processes that are going on at the same time in a loan application, and the appraisal is just one of them. They all operate in a, in a vacuum, but they are all interrelated, right? So you have underwriting of the credit and underwriting of the collateral. You have underwriting of the appraisal. You have insurance considerations that the lender has to make. It all has to follow through this this huge pipeline, and it all comes down to one point when they have enough information to make a loan decision, and then they're ready to go off to the races. I'm glad you mentioned that, Ken, because I do point that out often to people that think that the appraisal is the end-all, be-all. Now, of course, I'm biased, and I think that it is. We're very important, but it's it's a, a package. There's a, It's a whole – the loan package is of many parts, and we're just one of them. But would I be correct in saying, Michelle, you're probably the best one to answer this, that the appraisal is usually the last piece to that puzzle. So what you guys are getting real anxious because you've got all this work done up till then. And then yeah. it's like, okay, well, we just need to have that appraisal back in our hands. And that's usually the last piece, correct? Correct. Yes. So often is. We we try to order as early as possible, but there are a lot of things that have to be you know, taken care of first on the you know credit side, for instance, or something to that effect. So we it just depends. Purchase, refi, whatever the the purpose is we really try to get it going, but it's always the last thing that gets underwritten. It could be sitting in a file for 15 days and then finally gets to the underwriter and then they need, you know, whatever they need. And that's when the, the time frame, the scary comes in. The term I've heard, it's, it's the longest pole in the tent, right? And it takes the most time. So a flood certificate takes, you know, minutes to produce. Uh, a title abstract can be done in hours, generally. Underwriting, a lot of it is automated, and you can underwrite, but with stipulations. And usually the biggest stipulation is once the value comes in, then I'm all I'm signed off on the underwriting here. So one, th one quote I read years ago is, you, you are only as fast as your slowest provider. 
And usually that slowest provider, because of the way the process is, is going to be the appraiser. You're exactly right. And then just going back to what I mentioned before, I look at it from your perspective, Michelle, you're sitting there, you've got all this work done. You're just waiting on this report to come in and Hey, anybody know where, what's going on with one, two, three main street. I think we assigned that one to Warren out in Denver. What's going on. And if I'm not updating your status and just letting you know where I'm at, Hey, I can't get a hold of your borrower. Maybe you can give me some different contact information or something to make that happen. The littlest thing like that keeps you guys on pins and needles. I'm sure. Yeah. It does. Even to make it more difficult is our sales teams have relationships, as we all know. And I mean, as appraisers, we're not supposed to, quote unquote, really care or but as the lender, we do because our relationships are our business. So I'm playing like both sides of the coin. I'm looking out for my appraiser, but I'm also looking out for our sales team to make sure they get the best quality work, timely communication to our, our teams. Yeah, and to add a little, you know, color here on the commercial side of things, while the processes are the same, they are much more elongated, right? So your commercial process for a loan, onboarding a loan generally will take months, right? So you will have a credit underwriting process that will take a series of weeks and a lot of detailed information. You you try to order that appraisal as quickly as you can because most commercial appraisals will take three, four, five, six weeks to get completed. Yeah. So that does have to be baked into this. But the you know the loan production process is pretty much the same for residential and commercial. In residential it's much more condensed. In commercial it's much more complex and elongated. I wanted to take the relationship thing a, a step further in that again, playing devil's advocate, knowing there's there's uh residential appraisers riding around out there listening to this podcast and saying, Well, I'm not allowed to talk to the lender, right? Talk to me a little bit about some more specifics about, is it true that we just can't talk to you? Not true. <laughs> Not Good. True. Elaborate on that, please. Not true. The compliance piece comes in during the selection of the appraiser and also not discussing value. Again, I love to communicate with my appraisers, whether it's my panel appraisers or through the AMCs. One thing that I've done is my name and email and my office number are on every single assignment. You can see it at the bottom. Any questions, communicate with me. And again, like to communicate early. So I always say to all the appraisers, please read your engagement letter. Please know exactly what they're looking for ahead of time. And then you can contact me if you have a question. But yes, they can always contact me. My number's right there. Right Just when they, right when they value, get the acceptance. Right? Just don't talk about value, yeah. Yep. Which I, yeah. I never seem to have a problem. And, and the, other, the other piece to it, too, is the loan officer is not the lender. So a lot of the rules that came into play here was to keep loan officer interference out of it and pressure out of it. Most lenders, whether they're banks or non-banks, will have an insulated function that is managing their appraisal function. So it could be somebody in the processing department is, is operating the appraisal desk, or they can have a dedicated appraisal department like, like Michelle was at. Those are the people that you want to be able to speak to. Because in the initial step of, of appraisals, unfortunately in residential, often you just get an address, right? Here's the address, here's the form that I need, and this is the due date. Well, that's only the initial phase of the appraiser identifying the problem that needs to be solved. And there are often times where you're going to need to reach out to the lender to find out how to handle certain situations. Each lender has their own little the intricacies when it comes to collateral risk conditions, right? 
you can be working for two separate lenders. One one lender would want something done subject to, and another another lender would want it done as is. So it's really important to develop these relationships to be have someone that you can talk to. I mean, there are so many times on the residential side, I would get a call from an appraiser saying, hey, this property has a uh, affordable housing restriction on it. What do I need to do? You know, it didn't come over on the order. Well, it didn't come over on the order because it's not in a loan operating system that's linked to the, the data points that are being mapped through our platform to get to you. Thank you for calling. Let's figure out how to solve this problem. 100%. I've had that situation recently, kind of what you're mentioning, Ken, in that I have different clients, different lenders that do the same valuation scenario differently. I'm thinking specifically, for example, you've got a house that probably is being purchased to eventually be fixed up, remodeled. So that lender might want a as-is value, as a, and on top of that, a subject to completion, a went once completed value. So one lender might do it where they'll accept your site value opinion from the cost approach as the as-is value, and then you give them one report that may have the subject to completion value. Another lender, you might turn that in that way, just assuming that this a different lender does it the same way, when in fact that's not true. They may want two separate reports. So to your point, every lender is going to have their own way of dealing with things, their own way of doing it, and it's our job as the appraiser to like you said, Michelle, read through your engagement letter and find out how that is. If not, pick up the phone. Yeah, if I could share another example of that that Please. really, really accentuates this is, I remember years ago talking to an appraiser, just a couple of years ago, and we requested a subject to correcting peeling paint, and it was not an FHA appraisal, right? So it was conventional, and typically conventional appraisal, conventional loan products do not need peeling paint addressed in a subject to condition. But this was a Pennsylvania housing finance loan that underwrites the FHA criteria, HUD criteria, and that became a condition. So there are all these little trappings and overlays that you don't have, the appraiser does not have visibility at the loan product level. So my conversation with the appraiser was, I need you to change this to subject to, and he said, okay, well, how will I know next time? I said, next time you'll know when you get a phone call from me that you'll need to change this again, but don't change it the next three times until you get a call from us. Unfortunately, gotcha. that's the way it works. Yep. Yep. Perfect example. One thing I wanted to touch on as well, within the Appraisal Institute, especially on the residential side, we're always talking about the fact that with that SRA designation brings the possibility that might not be there for those without a designation for non-lender type work, estate, divorce, expert witness testimony. So this podcast was interesting to me because it's kind of the opposite of how we usually talk about within the Appraisal Institute with, with regard to a designation, because a lot of SRAs still do lender work like myself. So I think there's this idea out there of the 40,000 or so non-AI affiliated certified and licensed appraisers across the country that, oh, why would I need a designation? I'm doing plenty of lender work. I'm doing just fine. I don't need that non-lending work. Well, interest rates go up and then I think they're finding that maybe they wish. So maybe if you can speak a little bit on that, if you have an opinion, either of you. Well, I agree with you that it definitely you need to open your doors. The current situations going on right now with the rates changing and the market is where it is and all the craziness, you need to be able to be, you know, flexible. 
I think that I get that where they just want to do what they have to do. And I totally understand that. And a lot of them are pretty good about making sure that they have money saved away so that they don't need to do a volume level for a year or six months or whatever. And some of them are really good at that. And some of them aren't. And some want to do more and some want to do less, you know. So I think, unfortunately, it comes down to what the person wants. And if they want to do more and they want to be more versatile, they definitely, a designation would help. And there's just no no question about it. I mean, I still do work on the side for um, estate work. I just do it on the side. It's a it's not a conflict. And I love doing it. It's still something I just love. I mainly do like high-end Newport Beach. And I'm doing one this weekend on the water, you know. And it's, it's still the passion I have to actually get in there and appraise. So one thing I would tell anybody who doesn't have a designation, you get to do some pretty cool stuff when you become designated, you know, and you can do this different type of work. These people aren't getting loans on their $25 million home. They're doing this type of work. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And as far as, so my experience with, with designations in the lender space is while the interagency guidelines make a point that you cannot, that cannot be a qualifying criteria to be an approved appraiser. What I find with your more complex properties is more often than not, we would go to someone who has the skill set that had gone through the program to get their SRA. So whether it's a high value property or a very complex, you know, waterfront property or even new construction, I find that appraisers with that designated appraisers handle new custom built new construction at a much better level when it comes to market analysis and presenting support for their conclusions. You both make great points and I agree 100%. Appraisers with designations may be on the same fee panels as those that aren't. But what I think some that aren't designated don't understand is they're not getting that complex, or I'll use Michelle's word, my new favorite word for complex is cool. <laughs> cool stuff on the beach, say, maybe a super high-end, high-rise condo or something like that in a, in a downtown area or something like that. But of course, with that comes a higher fee. So I may be getting the same work from the same lender and that non-designated appraiser may say, see, I, I don't need my designation, but you don't understand. They're giving me the the high complex, higher end complex stuff that you're not getting because of my designation. And I don't think a lot understand that. Maybe what I'm getting at and what we talk about sometimes within the residential appraiser project team is that maybe it's more important to educate lenders than the appraisers themselves of the importance of having the designation. In other words, can you you mentioned that that can't be a qualifying factor, but within banks and, and uh, credit unions and things like that, could the conversations happen that, look, we see that a SRA designated appraiser has this skill level that you can't maybe find with someone without that designation. Can we require that somehow for our panel? Not sure if you can require it, but you know, you can require the skill set, but not the designation. So gotcha. I think there are opportunities to educate lenders. The biggest area that I see a need for this is loan servicing and mixed use properties. Mixed use predominantly residential properties, those are probably the most difficult properties to try to assign and imagine markets all over the country because you will have many residential appraisers who say, I only do houses, I can't do mixed use. 
but many mixed-use properties can be lent on in a residential mortgage format. So then the bank will try to go out to a certified general appraiser, and that appraises, well, I don't do form reports, and the lending system only accepts form reports. So it becomes a real quandary, and I think that's that could be a real selling point and an opportunity for the SRA-designated appraiser to educate the lenders to say, look, when you're in a bind and you get into these sticky situations with complex properties, an SRA appraiser will be able to handle this. And give us, give us a handful of examples for the listeners of maybe specifically what types of mixed-use properties you're talking about. We will see primary residences with, say, a dentist's office in it or a small medical practice in it or a small massage, you know, if it's owner-occupied and the, the occupant is running an accounting business out of their house and they have the zoning to be able to do it, you know, mm-hmm. that facilitates this. And as we're seeing, you know, this is going to be a big trend as now we have more people working from home. I think this is going to be a big shift and this is going to be a more complicating factor in a residential space as well. If you're hanging a shingle out in front of your house and zoning allows you to do that as an owner-occupant, then you should not be excluded from a residential mortgage. I think another example I've seen on this is, you know, even someone who has who has hobbies, like a hobby horse farm, where you're renting out six or seven stables out in the barn out back. I've seen appraisers, residential appraisers, like, I want nothing to do with this. When I'm in a field, those used to be my favorite assignments, right? Because I got to explore the entire central part of the state to find every single horse farm and equestrian center and, and really get an understanding on what's driving those markets. Gotcha. Mixed use is different and it, and it really comes down to the investor. And I, I was going to say also knowing who the investor is on the assignment sometimes is very helpful to know whether you can proceed with, say, a mixed use, you know, and how you can proceed with an income production property, whether or not you can. So knowing the investor to a point, you know, sometimes it's helpful, whether it's a Fannie Freddie, if it's an FHA, or if it's a private lender or jumbo, what's going on. So that's another thing the appraiser needs to make sure they understand. And with that comes complexities. Again, we have community land trusts, you know, that require cap rates on a residential property. And as much as I've been a residential, I did take a cap class. I know I know how to do them. (laughs) So I had to write the, the guideline for it. So I think with the designation you get a lot more education or beneficial education that can help you be that one appraiser that everybody looks to. And I'm glad you brought up Community Land Trust because we have them here in Massachusetts as well. Out on Martha's Vineyard of all places, right? So it's a big, big community land trust. But also, and this is becoming very controversial in the residential space, but it's investor-owned short-term rentals. So, you know, VRBOs and and Airbnbs, and there are some investors out there that are lending on these things based on the income scenario. So they will want the appraiser to do an income approach, a full-fledged income approach. It does not necessarily meet the criteria. You know, it's one of these fuzzy areas. Is it commercial? Is it residential? Well, this is a residential use and zoning allows it and zoning allows for residential short-term rentals, there are zoning designations out there in many cities now that are, they're creating these little sub-markets of can only do short-term rentals in this five, five square block radius from the convention center. And mm-hmm. that is creating this little market and it's this little niche. And I don't think that we're mature enough in the market to see comps out of this, but someone needs to be able to do that analysis. And the good thing about having your designation, if you don't know how to do it, 
There's a lot of people that you can turn to and reach out and that was going to be my point, Michelle. Yeah. That's great about the <laughs> appraisal right. institute. Is maybe cap rates? Maybe those that word scares me, and I don't want to <laughs> have to deal with it. So, but I do know somebody that will, yeah, because of my relationships that I've built with with other designated people. So, uh, I'm glad you said that. That was you stole my thunder right there. I could be wrong about this, but I think I remember hearing. I want to say maybe it was in a class that Byron Miller was teaching at last year's national conference about. ADUs, accessory dwelling units. And I think, Ken, you talked about zoning changes that I think Minneapolis has changed to where the zoning in Minneapolis proper, I'm, I'm going to say that he mentioned that you, everyone now can have, can build legally an ADU. And we're seeing that a ton here in Denver. It used to be just three, probably three years ago, where if I got a property that had an accessory dwelling unit in in our market, it usually takes the form of a bonus room built above a detached rear garage, one bedroom, one bath, kitchenette type of thing. Neighborhoods are falling one by one in Denver, kind of similar to what it sounds like in Minneapolis, where the zoning will allow for that. And so what we're dealing with a ton here and I mentioned three years ago there, I, I deal with one. Now it's once a week where I have that type of property where people are airbnb maybe a short-term six-month rental, but it is rampant and popular. And we as appraisers need to know how to deal with that. So that's a perfect example there that I have in my market that I know is happening elsewhere with ADUs. And, and it's because, Ken, like you talked about, people's ideas about how they work have changed. You start, you worked from home for two years and then you're like, well, maybe once a week I'd like to get into an office or every other day. But it's even got to the point where builders are changing their floor plans. You know, the consumer is requiring some kind of work from home space. And even I, I want to say one particular builder, and I won't even mention because I don't want to get it wrong if I'm not remembering who it was specifically that you're seeing now that you never would have thought you'd see three years ago would be a, a separate entrance on the front of a house that goes straight into a den that's different from the main entrance to the house where you'd be in like a foyer area because that's where the person works from home. And if they have clients, they don't necessarily want that client coming, walking through their living room to get to the den. So it's changed everything to the point where houses are being built differently. And I just threw a ton of stuff at you guys there, but comment wherever you'd like. I've just seen, so talk about how things change and villages are changing. I live in a town in Massachusetts that was founded 402 years ago, right? <laughs> and they built a new condo down on the waterfront. It is being marketed as a one bedroom with flex space. I've never seen the flex space term used in a residential setting before, but basically it's a two bedroom condo that they are saying, live by yourself and you can work from home. No one previously would want to market a one-bedroom condo, right? Yeah. That's like in LA, I found we had one. They're converting those loft things. And it was a one-bedroom, one-bath, 2,100 square foot. And yeah. it was just one big open area. So like you're saying, it's changing. People were working out of there. I mean, this guy was running a whole shop. I won't even talk about that. <laughs> but the ADUs have changed so much. And finally, you know, Fannie Freddie are coming on board, too, on what they'll allow. Um, that's ever changing with them too. I'm on the Fannie forum that I work with lenders. It, it's a constant changing with the ADUs. Now in California, it's allowed anywhere so long as the zoning and the zoning has to allow it. So it's it's gotten really mucky up here <laughs> over here, you know. But Fannie allowing an ADU with multiple units now that just changed. 
So a two unit with an ADU or a three unit with songs doesn't go over four units. You know, it's things are changing with them. So they're they're keeping up on the times. FHA, I don't know so much. So. <laughs> yeah. And the, the word of caution there is zoning, right? I always caution appraisers, you need to research your zoning and make sure it's permitted. And a yeah, lot of, it has a to lot be allowed. Of, and it's difficult in a place like Massachusetts. We have 351 municipalities. Mm-hmm. So there are 351 zoning ordinances out there. And there are 351 zoning officers out there. So it can be quite tricky. It, you start doing old school appraisal where you're picking up the phone and you're calling and you're talking to someone or you're going down to the town hall. Our processes have changed so much over the last 20 years. But sometimes you just have to roll up your sleeves. Get your, get your feet dirty and get your hands dirty and just endure the perseverance of working through the municipal structure to understand the problem that you're trying to solve. And that's our job as appraisers. We're detectives. That is yep. our job. That's what we're being hired to do. So be grateful that that type of work is out there and you're the one that has to scour and figure it out and understand what's different about this municipality as opposed to this one, even though they're two blocks away. That's our job. So Shifting gears just a little bit here, but uh, if I were a prospective appraiser that was looking to get into lender work, what advice would you would you say to that, Michelle? For example, do you seek out, just your example there, do you guys seek out when you have a need? Or if I were to just reach out to you and say, hey, I'm in your area, can I get on your panel? How does that typically work? Um, we do both, I can say. You know, we seek out some, but I do appreciate the ones that come to me. They'll email me directly. Hey, I've done work for you through the AMC. I know you have a direct panel with that more complex situation and things like that, too. Just also is make sure that you're vetting the company you want to work with. You know, ask them for some names of people that work in that area and, and you can contact them and make sure they, they fit your mold. In they other words, not. you're you're looking for an appraiser. You, that means somebody must have left. Why did they leave? <laughs> right. So I think that it goes both ways. I think it's important for everybody to do their due diligence, especially as an appraiser. If I can jump in on, if I were Please. if I were to do this all over again, right? If I were an appraiser starting again and and doing it, there are two things that I would do. Number one is I would ask the lender if do you have supplemental reporting standards that you want me to do on every assignment. And so get those, ingest those, and understand what the lender requires from an appraisal reporting standpoint. Because the methodologies don't change and the application doesn't change. What is constantly changing is the reporting requirements. I used to quip to people, it's like a lender can ask for almost anything they want in their appraisal report. If they want to know the Benjamin Moore color of the house, you should do the research and provide it to them, right? I mean, that's that's an exaggerated example, but, but that just... It's an example that accentuates how how different lenders can be from a lender-to-lender perspective or loan program-to-program perspective. And the other piece here is if you're going to do lender work that does sell to the secondary markets, become familiar with the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac selling guides and make sure you're doing the HUD selling, you know, the HUD um, handbook and the VA, the VA requirements and develop the change management program. So, so that you are up to speed. When Fannie and Freddie change their advice on the the adjustments or the mileage of comparables several years ago, three, four, five years later, you're still getting questions for us, seeing in appraisal reports that I could not choose this comparable because it was more than a mile away. 
Yeah. And it, it was outdated. So developing a structured change management program so that you understand and dispel a lot of the myths that are out there. There are so many myths out there. There are legacy myths that they're perpetuated by underwriters, by reviewers and appraisers themselves. If realtors. everyone can get realtors, if you can get on the same page, it would it would take some of the friction out of this whole process. Exactly. Great exactly. Advice. And to that point, there's a way to sign up for making sure with Fannie, Freddie, and, and FHA that you're getting the updates. Some pe- I still have people that don't know that you can sign up and get an email from Fannie with their current updates or whatever. And so that's a big one. So make sure you understand that you can't get those updates. I think USDA too. Probably VA. Yep. VA, they, I believe they call them circulars. Yeah, that's right. They call we them circulars. We get the email yeah. about circulars. And Fannie but, has uh, them and everybody has them. And so when something changes at Fannie, they're very good at explaining exactly what they're looking for. And they've got, you can contact them and, and ask them a question. They're really good about responding worth that time. Sure are. Absolutely. Well, I have taken you both longer than I anticipated, and I want to thank you in advance both for your time, but I do want to give you both one last opportunity. If you have anything else you feel like you wanted to get out, that make sure that the listeners hear from you. I'm always open to questions because it, it is a ever-changing world out there, what we do, so never hesitate. Uh, and my advice is just remember, success comes when there is mutual benefit. And if you always approach this with mutual benefit, you will improve communications and understand that lenders sometimes cannot communicate well. They have constraints on their processes. But if we as the appraiser or you as the appraiser can communicate and keep them aware of situations as they come up, it pays its dividends in building that relationship and strengthening that relationship. Be that appraiser out there that the underwriter does not think before they pick up the phone, oh no, I can't believe I have to make this call. Be the one that they're glad they're reaching out to you. Be agreeable. Thank you both. Michelle Rogers, SRA, Ken Dix, MAI. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Well, thank you guys for having me. I really, really had a great time. It was was a good time. Of course. And our, our listenership is growing. Thank you to our listeners. Six now in the can. I believe next month you will have Tony Avilas, M-A-I-A-I-G-R-S, my partner for another discussion that you won't want to miss. But you can always subscribe from the AI website, iTunes, Spotify, and Anchor are other places you can find this podcast. Michelle, Ken, thank you. 